We are in the middle of a, a summer break and transitioning from spring to summer, and here we are. And uh, I hope you guys, uh, many of you have the t-shirts on for the 200th celebration. We're, we're in, uh, almost at the point of celebrating uh, in, coming up in August. And so if you don't know about the celebration, everybody's got these t-shirts on. If you haven't got your t-shirt, check with Allison yet. Um, but we're going to get into the book of Acts as we get into, um, there it is, as we get into the uh, session of understanding what God is doing on earth for heaven's sake. Uh, we're, we're looking at the book of Luke, and last week I introduced that book as we did in the uh, Sunday school. We went over that. What we do is we preach on Sunday, and then Sunday school we go back and have a discussion on the following week. So if you're not in Sunday school, you're missing a lot. Uh, but this week we're going to talk about the Ascension Promise. And the Ascension Promise uh, is something that most Christians either don't know much about, but it's a fact and a factor in understanding how you grow in Christ. And so... As we begin the opening up the book of Acts, we want to look at a couple of things. And what I want to do today is I want to review for you uh, something about what the disciples went through. So we're going to go into the very place where Jesus has said his last 13 words to the disciples. And then we'll look at the purpose of the ascension and the promise that Christ left those men with. But last week I talked about the Luke-Acts story being a unit that in the early church, if you were in Thessalonica or um, Galatia or, or Corinth, the Luke-Acts unit, they were together as one. Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and the Book of Acts went together everywhere uh, that book went. They were read as a two-volume set. And then I talked about, um, then there was Paul, and Paul came along, and he had his set, those 13 books of Paul. And then Matthew and Mark and and John had their Gospels, and so they cut off Luke and Acts, and they made the Synoptic Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They went around as a unit, and so Acts was on its own for a while, until in history the church brought it together and said, uh, we need to have an historical account. And the book of Acts is the bridge between the work the guy was doing in Jerusalem and the work that he would do in Rome as the gospel would move from Israel to the ends of the earth. And so we talked last week about this theologian of Luke and what an amazing man he was. He was a brilliant man. He was the Leonardo da Vinci, the Bren Franklin of the first century, as I heard today. Uh, it was, uh, uh, he was a gifted man, an artist. Uh, uh, he was called the patron saint. He was a doctor. He was uh, gifted in so many ways. But Luke was the one who researched and studied, uh, did, did the case studies as he would listen to all these testimonies from those 70 witnesses who followed Christ to probably those who were at Pentecost. But Luke would write these things down for his friend Theophilus. And again, these are two no-name men. Most people wouldn't know much about these two, except my recollection, my conjecture is that probably Luke was a good friend of Theophilus and probably was one to influence and disciple him. Theophilus went on to become the bishop there in Antioch and he was very powerful. 
But Luke records, uh, Luke is the only one who records special events in detail, as I mentioned last week. And so this account in the book of Luke, as he starts with the ascension of Christ, Matthew doesn't talk much about it, Mark and John don't talk much about it, but Luke does, because he's paying attention to the details so that the faith of Theophilus would rest with certainty that this is what actually happened. And so he writes the most excellent Theophilus. And, uh, but you've got to keep in mind, Luke never saw Christ. Luke never saw the resurrected Lord. Luke wasn't there at Pentecost. Uh, probably he was the one that became a follower later on, but he went back and he collected all this data. But he was the one, he's a Gentile, like Theophilus, and so they needed to have the facts. Like Luke, you too weren't there at the resurrection. Like Theophilus, you didn't know much about the ascension. But it was the book of Acts where Luke begins to explain something very important. But remember, for, for us, it's a report. For them, it was an experience. I want to talk about that as we get into it because these men were radically changed when they saw the Lord lifted up. But Luke ends his book saying, while Jesus was blessing them, them meaning the apostles that he had gathered, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And then they worshipped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed uh, continually at the temple praising God. These men were affected deeply because something radically had happened in their experience of seeing the Lord actually lifting up, being lifted up in their sight, but the last words were a blessing. Luke ends the first volume that way, and he begins the first volume, uh, uh, first part of the second volume, saying, gathering them together. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. Now, this is an interesting little verse because every time the word gathering is used, when, when God would gather, there was an, intent, an intentionality to leave an impression through the instruction that these men would have to know these things. And so he gathered these men together, and the question is, where did he gather them together? Anybody know? Where was the last place? What's it called? Bethlehem, more specific. It was on a mountain. Mount Olivet. We're going to talk about this in a minute. Because when you hear the word mountain, in, in Israel, uh, there's only one mountain. And it's in the northern part by Syria. It's called Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon has that snow-covered uh, place where you can go skiing in, in Israel. But it's the place where where Isaiah probably saw it, where your sins, though they be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. But the idea of mountains in Israel isn't what we would think of as Americans, tall Colorado mountains or uh, Mount Everest. They're, they're, they're called mountains, but uh, Mount Hermon was the ridge of the north, but most mounts looked like, like this. And so the topography of Israel would be more low-lying uh, hills or mounts 
as they would call. And you hear these phrases uh, that the Sermon on the Mount was given near uh, Lake, uh, the Sea of Galilee, Gennesaret, or Capernaum. It was a fishing town, but you can understand how the lakes would come down. Then the, they're not mountains around lakes. They're just hills. But these, these hills are important because we just saying God can move mountains. Well, for the Jewish people, they weren't thinking mountains, mountains. They were thinking uh, when you climb up a steep climb, uh, that's what they would call the mount. And that's where, as you look at this bit, this picture, it's really interesting. The, the Sea of Galilee is up in the northeast by Capernaum, and you see that valley coming down there on the right. There's Jericho. And when Luke would write that Jesus went up into the hills, he could have said he went up into the mountains. It would have been the same word. Hills, mount, mountain are all the same. But notice the topography. It's this ridge-like uh, much like the Appalachians, uh, we would have that kind of scene in our mind, but Jesus would go up there. But it was there that this image of mountain and hill that Jesus would often use because he would say, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill, a city set on a mountain cannot be hid in Matthew 5.14. Well, Luke begins a second, the second volume, saying he gathered them on a mountain. And that mountain uh, was a hill much like uh, the hills in Rome. Now, I didn't know this, but there is a, this is a freebie, a parenthetical point. Uh, in Rome, it was called the, uh, the city of seven hills. There are seven hills in Rome with rivers, three rivers going through Rome. But the idea that seven was the perfect number in, in the Hebrew numerology. But the idea that Jerusalem also had seven hills. Did you know that? That there were seven hills in the city of Jerusalem. I didn't know that. And so the northern summit is called Scopus, and the middle is called Nob. And these are historical places where things would happen in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, I won't go through all those, but just so you, you know that this is a very perfect place as God set in Jerusalem these seven hills right there and that's where God gathered them together. Now this is significant for a reason. Uh, when they were gathered on the hill of Mount Olivet I want to show you this place because as Jesus was taken up off of Olivet his last footprint on earth was there and this is Mount Olivet. It's uh, just outside and east of the Jerusalem temple. And so watch this, because this is fun. Uh, the eastern gate, if you go into the city of Jerusalem, you have all these gates into the temple city. But the eastern gate, the sealed gate, is the gate uh, where Christ is to go through when he returns. The eastern gate, if you step out, if you step on those steps and you step off of those steps, you'll come across a cemetery. It's a Muslim cemetery immediately at the foot of the gate on the eastern side. And that, that view takes a look into a valley, and the valley is called the Kidron Valley, and it's a valley that runs 20 miles north up into... Uh, 
up into the northern part of Israel. It's called the Kidron Valley. So now you've got the temple, the, 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 the valley coming down, and in that valley is the place of the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane is where Christ wept for Jerusalem. He wept because they wouldn't come. But the triumphal entry, as they would come down uh, the hills, they would go up into the temple. But Jesus traveled many times that valley. And when he came across that, that, that valley in the garden is where he would uh, pray. Just opposite of the garden is this church on the other side. As you're looking out from the temple is the Church of the Nations. And right behind that, in that gold dome building up front, is the Temple of Mary Magdalene, which the Russians built. <clears throat> now, this is all interesting information, but there's a point to it. As you go up the hill to the Mount of Olivet, uh, the, Jordanians, the Jordanians actually built a hotel up on top of the mountain. It's called the Hotel of the Seven Arches. But what's interesting about these arches is that they've done studies where there is a fault, fault line going right underneath that restaurant, the hotel of Seven Arches. And that, that, that fault line is important because that's where the Mount of Olivet is also located. And at the top of that mountain where Jesus left, they built a chapel. It's called the Chapel of the Ascension. Now, if you go into that chapel, it's a very small chapel, but this is what you would see. It's a small, dark room. They have the place surrounded by that cement uh, right there in the center, lined with candles. That's the sacred place where Christ left. Now, why is all that important? It's important because there's a passage in the Old Testament, Zechariah 14.4. Listen to this. This is great. On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to the west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. When Jesus returns to the Mount of Olivet and touches that place, that fault line, there's going to be a shift, and Christ returns to the very place where he left. That's the promise that he's coming again for us. In the Jewish cosmology, when you think about Jesus being lifted up, when you read this text, you think, this is crazy. This doesn't fit modern science. But remember, this is Luke's account of what happened. In the Jewish, in the Jewish mind, their thinking, the way they would talk about things, would be that, well, there's the earth, and then there's the sky that which you would see, the clouds that he was received in, and then above that would be heaven. And so in the, in the Jewish world, just to this report, what Luke said was God had lifted up his son and taken him up into heaven, and from the same heaven, God's going to come back one day for you and for me. What this means, what this does in our understanding it shifts everything to help you understand who the Lord is and what it makes God God is that God is transcendent. God is not locked into a limited body. God is not locked into a limited world. 
the transcendence of God, that Jesus would lead the very presence of this earth, but he would not lead the presence of the universe that he created. He was transcendent. And transcendent means literally to be above or beyond. Theologically, it refers to the fact that God is above all and beyond all creation. God is wholly other. God is not tied to, bound by the natural laws. And therefore, he stands beyond the fallen, created order as one who is perfectly holy. It makes God God. He's everywhere. He knows everything. He's holy in all of his ways, and his ways are not our ways. And therefore, you, you understand for the Jewish people, they, they knew that God created all space, and God created all time. He created all energy and created all matter. But God is not his creation. He is separate from his creation. And therefore, he would say, as David would say in Psalms 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. You belong to God, whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you understand it or not. All of the world, all of creation belongs to this transcendent Lord. And the God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and Lord of earth, He does not dwell in temples made with hands. He is transcendent beyond all physical bounds. And this is the one we call Christ Jesus the Lord. Philippians 2, above every name, transcending every name, above every knee, and every knee will bow below those who are in heaven and those who are on earth. Philippians 2, Ephesians 1. We looked at this in the series of Ephesians. That far above all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He is transcendent. This one that they looked upon now had an impression that he was now fulfilling everything that he had promised from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And therefore... What these people, what these men knew and what they experienced was the Lord of glory being taken up with the final image of Jesus blessing them as he was lifted up. Those hands are still lifted up to this day, blessing his people. But the image that they had was that everything that they were involved with for the three years of following Christ was now being fulfilled. Now let me give you this little four-point thing that you'll, you'll hear later on. But this is interesting. For every human experience we go through, every human experience you and I go through, whether it's we're buying tires or, 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 or working in the yard or relationships or job decisions, uh, whatever we go through, and especially what we go through in death or in surgeries or what Jim was went, what you went through, you cried upon Uh, You cried out to God, and God showed himself to you mercifully, graciously. It's an experience. Now, whatever experience we go through, you go through these four stages. One, you have an experience. And going through that experience, you've got to figure out what happened. As we go through the experience, we try to understand our experience as the disciples would do. But as you go through and try to understand it, you you come to a point of making a decision, sorry, a discernment, fitting together like a puzzle piece in order to to make it 
fit you. And so you make a judgment. Is this me? Is this not me? Is this what I want? I don't want this. And so these judgments that you make, that you fit in, it either fits into your mind or it doesn't fit into your mind. And then if it fits into your mind, you make a decision for or you make a decision against. These are the four stages of of understanding that the Spirit of God works in, except the problem is when you come to experience, sometimes we don't see or understand based on our experience. For example, you remember in the tomb when Jesus was resurrected and John and Peter went into the tomb? Peter went into the tomb and he had no idea what was going on. John went into the tomb and he said, "Ah." you can have an experience and not see. That's the point. But if you go into an experience and you don't get beyond the experience to understand, you have to bring an understanding to what you experience. And what you do from that experience on determines everything. Because it shapes your perspective. If God is a transcendent God, it shapes your perspective. If there is no God, it shapes your perspective. But your experience is going to be based on your understanding, and your understanding is going to be based on your judgment or your discernment, and that discernment is going to move you into action. Well, those men watching Jesus, what was going through their minds? What did they understand? Did they understand all that Jesus was doing? I don't think so. I don't think so. Because at the point when they were gathered on the Mount of Olivet, they said, okay, Jesus, we know that you are the Lord. We know that you've conquered death. And we know that you are the Lord of power. Are you going at this time to restore Israel to powerful, the political glory that it once was in the Old Testament? They didn't understand. But that's what their thinking was. And Jesus says, you don't, no, no, it's not for you to know. There's something far greater than Israel. Something far greater than just this temple and the political system. Because I'm doing something in your day, you wouldn't believe it if I were to tell you. So Jesus said, it's not for you to know, but it is for you to know that, that I'm going to restore the kingdom. I'm going to restore the kingdom, but I'm going to restore it in a way that you don't understand. So the question is, are you going to restore it? The answer is yes and no. God is going to restore the kingdom the way he has always planned to restore the kingdom. But he's not going to restore it into a political system. And therefore, those disciples at that point were lifted up out of the world of a political, empirical, uh, limited, earthly, earthbound system, and they began to think transcendently that the Lord of glory is doing something far greater and we're involved. Jesus left. And what was in his mind? I think, what did did Jesus understand? He was leaving. If you think about, if you're a strategic planner, would you leave the the whole gospel mission uh, of, of the ministry of the kingdom to these 11 men who were not fully trained yet? What was going through his mind? And Jesus said, I'm not worried about those men. I am the Lord. I am in control. And therefore, as Peter said, and Paul understood, as others did in the New Testament, when Jesus was lifted up, where did he go? He went to the right hand of the Father, of, of, of the Father, having gone into heaven 
after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. He was now the Lord of glory, and he was now summing up all things into Christ. As we looked in Ephesians, Jesus would bring heaven and earth under his feet, and he would integrate because he was going to restore the kingdom. And therefore, these two things that most Christians, and even myself, I think, we don't really understand this, but the first century church did. And they would have days to celebrate the ascension of Christ and what they would call the session of Christ, of him sitting down. That was big for the New Testament believers. Not only would he be raised, but he would be seated. The session or seating was what they would celebrate. And what it means is this, that the first, that the, the ascension was the end of the ministry of Jesus on earth. That Mark would say, so then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up. His final, final words were uh, spoken and he was received up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. Luke picks this up too. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Now again, 21st century scientific, I don't believe that. That's just a myth. And so again, you can't use 21st century lenses to rewrite the first century experience. This is what Luke said that they understood and they experienced and they made the decision and they would follow through and make the, uh, to be the witnesses for Christ. Two, the fact that the seating at the right hand is the beginning of Christ's heavenly ministry. Christ is still at work. He's always been at work. The ascension... Uh, he's up before the Father, and what is he doing before the Father? Let me tell you what Jesus is doing now. He is your high priest. He's your king. He's your prophet. He's your savior. He's the one that's representing you as a savior, because if he were not there, you would not have access to the throne of grace. But because Christ is there, the Father is welcoming you. And he loves you. And he loves you just as he loves the Son. And therefore, what Christ is doing is as, as your Savior representing your advocate before God, he is forgiving you, restoring you, and praying for you. Hebrews says, but because Jesus has, he lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to make intercession, to intercede for them. You've got to go to Christ in order for Christ to come to you, in order for him to intercede. For those who come to God through him, understand all the glory from the throne room. God's ultimate kingdom purpose is to unite all things back under his son, you and me, who've been disjointed, fallen, broken, messed up. But we come back into a harmonious, reconciled relationship because the Lord of glory came on earth to seek and save that which was lost. This cosmic event, the reconciling work of Christ, from whom all blessings flow. Now you might think this ascension is kind of a crazy thing to believe in. Or the seating of God, seating of Christ at the right hand. I can't see that. Well, neither can you see the resurrection. 
And neither can you see the incarnation. And neither can you see Abraham. You can't see anything, so it's all going to be by faith that the Spirit of God, who has been promised by the Father, comes down to enter into your experience so that your understanding would shift from being just a transcendent God to being a very personal, present God. And that's what Christ would say. Gathering them together, he instructed them, he commissioned them, you shall be my witnesses to what you have just seen. Like Matthew says, you are to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I taught you to obey. And then he blessed them. And he blessed them, and those men were changed. He said, now stay here until what the Father promised and what I told you about, that the Holy Spirit would be coming. This would change their experience. This would change their understanding. This would change their thinking about, is this what I want to do? Is this me? And they'd say, yes, yes, I want to be involved in this. And I am involved in this. And they were commissioned as apostles, and they would go forth. You are the light of the world. You are the witnesses of Christ. And therefore, the promise is, as, as the, the promise is that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Transcendent, imminent, present, the Spirit coming. All of these men uh, understood and they went back down from Mount Olivet, they went back up that valley, back to the upper room, which we'll get into next week. But here's the point I want you to remember. As Jesus was lifted up, the promise is he's going to come back again and put foot right there in that same place. And he'll stand on the Mount of Olives. That's the promise and prophecy of Scripture. Therefore, for us, what we need to do as we see Christ in our experience, we too have to open up and be lifted up to understand that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus will do what he says he will do. And the Holy Spirit is still at work in response to the intercession of God up above. You are his witnesses. It's your experience and your walk with him. As you understand the saving knowledge of Christ, that he has forgiven you. He is merciful to you. He's good to you. He's everything he says he is and more and more. That's the beginning that Theophilus heard from Luke. And now Luke and Theophilus join in that throng of witnesses as they go along. If you haven't received Jesus Christ as Lord, if you don't understand what it means to be saved, you're saved from your sins, saved from the fallenness, saved from the separation to a very intimate relationship where God warmly, lovingly walks with you day by day to help you in your battles, to walk with you, whatever you go through. It's about a relationship. If you've never asked Christ to come into your heart, you need to ask and define the relationship. Say, Lord, I know who you are. I just never asked you in before. I want you to come into my life, not just as Savior, but everything. Be Lord of my life. We confess our sins, and he will forgive us our sins. If you've, ever, if you've never done that, then you may have a relationship just by external churchianity. 
But Christianity is one that follows Jesus Christ, that one who spoke and lifted up his people. The good news is God still is at work for all human hearts. And therefore, the promise of Luke, as we get into this, it gets really exciting. So you can buckle your seatbelts, and I would encourage you to go read the book of Luke, because next week you'll find, you'll find the men still struggling with, what do we do now? The book of Acts is the book of actions. It's the actions of these men, the acts of the apostles, and the actions of the Holy Spirit. And so let's go back as we do this, as we look at this, we're looking for the same thing here at Chesterland Baptist, that God would do the same work that he did in the human heart back then in our hearts today. Let's pray. Father, we love you, though we've never seen you. We know that you were lifted off, and we believe Luke, we believe Theophilus, and we believe all those witnesses that have gone before us. Father, we know that you make intercession as you, you're seated at the right hand of Christ, and even now, each one of us, you're praying for us. Your care is transcendent, and your grace is omnipotent, and your knowledge infinite. You know us, and you still want us, and we want you. So, Father, would you come by your Spirit and do your work to make us followers of Jesus Christ, that we, too, would be cities set on a hill, and set in the hills in Chesterland and Russell and Bainbridge and all the surrounding area, in our Judea, in our Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Father, would you lift up your Son again, and may you be praised and glorified through your witnesses. We pray this for your glory and our growth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.